Welcome to Scope of Practice, a podcast that opens the window for an inside look at different practice groups and the lives of attorneys in those groups here at Ropes & Gray. I'm Yoni Levy, a partner in our asset management group based in Boston. On this episode, I'm joined by Dee Kujakula, an eighth-year associate in our private capital transactions group based in New York, and by Reed Harrisimowicz, a seventh-year associate in our private capital transactions group based in San Francisco. Hi, Dee. Hi, Reed. How are you? Hey, Yoni. Doing well. How are you? Hey, Yoni. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, very excited about this. I think this is uh, an episode that probably our listeners have been have been longing to hear, which is a deep dive into what everyone culturally calls M&A and understanding what it is that that means. So why don't we start out with a bit of background about yourself personally and your and your practice at Ropes and Gray? Um, you know, did you have any background before you joined and, and what attracted you particularly to private equity? Yeah, thanks, Yoni. I'm happy to start. Zero background in in private equity. <laughs> you know, I think anybody who who kind of gets into M and A private equity, they, they don't really know what they're doing or going into it. Know they want to do it. But a little bit about me first. Seventh year associate in the San Francisco office, and actually born and raised in Boston. Started in the Boston office as a summer associate. So I've had a little bit of exposure to different offices at the firm. And like I mentioned before, private equity associate. I was going to be a football coach before I even started thinking about getting into into law. I actually kind of like fell into a paralegal job at a labor and employment uh, firm. And so I was able to see law from that perspective, but ultimately didn't think I wanted to do litigation, went to law school, I had a really interesting private equity class. Uh, so I was actually had the benefit of having a, a class on the matter and then I was taught by a former Ropes partner who was a professor at BC Law, and that's what really kind of sparked my interest. And I basically have been doing private equity ever since I started at the firm. I graduated a year early from college, and I knew I wasn't ready to go to law school quite yet, so I wanted to work for a bit. So I I, wor- I moved to DC, and I worked at um, another law firm in their professional development and event planning um, department. And through the professional development aspect of the job, I actually saw what like every different practice group at this large law firm did like tax work, M&A work, asset management. And I actually had a, a decent sense of what each practice involved. Um, and so kind of leaving that firm and heading into law school, I, I sort of thought M&A could be a good fit for me, given like my event planning background, because actually there is a lot of similarities between the two in terms of like process management and kind of getting an event versus getting a deal done and all the different stakeholders that you're kind of communicating with and coordinating with. Um, and then after law school, I actually, I didn't summer at Ropes. I summered at another firm and I, I did M&A there, um, but it was more like strategic based M&A and less private equity. And then uh, when I was a third year, I decided to make the change and I then came to Ropes and have been here ever since. Really interesting. Can you break down a little bit what's the difference between strategic M&A and sort of plain vanilla law of private equity? Yeah. So I think of um, if you, I think of M&A as maybe like a pie and there's like different types of acquirers out there. And so if you think about the pie, the largest share of um, deal volume that happens is by far by private equity sponsors because they're serial acquirers. They're in the job of um, buying and selling companies. And so they raise money solely for that purpose. And because of their mandate, that that's why we see the highest amount of volume from them. And then a strategic acquirer is someone who 
actually just runs and operates a business and then happens to do M&A in order to expand their business. And then between strategic acquirers, you have public companies and then you have private companies. So a classic public company strategic acquirer would be like a Johnson & Johnson. And then like a private company strategic acquirer would now be Twitter because they went private. But because those strategic acquirers, like their main job isn't necessarily to buy and sell. So there's just usually um, a lower volume of deals being done by any particular um, strategic acquirer compared to a private equity sponsor. And how does that impact the workflow of an attorney who's working on strategic uh, M&A versus PE-focused M&A? I think if you're at a firm with a very robust M&A practice, even if all your clients are public company clients or strategic acquirers, you, you should expect to probably work just as much as you would in a private equity practice. But at my old firm, I did find the workflow a bit more haphazard. Whereas at Ropes, like I work with multiple clients who do multiple deals a year. And so I think just as a function of that, like private equity practices for firms who are like very established in the private equity space, like Ropes is, tend to be pretty volume, high volume and very busy. I think like our PE sponsor clients versus you know, strategic company acquirer clients, there's our PE clients are a little bit more streamlined in how they're structured internally. And so they're able to get, you know, things done a little bit, I think, on a quicker timeline. Whereas if you're dealing with, um, you know, strategic company acquirer or public company or anything like that, it's a little bit more bureaucratic. So you do have more parties that you need to run things by and things are, are not necessarily moving and not able to move as quickly. And so there's a little bit of a change of pace depending on, on who your client is on any given deal. And how about from a diligence perspective? Is it roughly the same or is it pretty different? From my experience, it's pretty similar, right? You're still, your clients are still concerned about the same things from a diligence perspective for any target company, right? Like they want to they want to know that what they're buying and what they think they're buying for what the price that they're willing to pay is is what they're getting. Um, and they want to know about the liabilities that are coming along with the, the company and how they can structure it to move some of those liabilities behind that they don't necessarily want to take. Yeah, the way I think about it actually is like who your client is typically doesn't affect diligence, but the type of target you're acquiring is maybe where you'll see differences in diligence. So when we would do a take private of a public company, public companies often say, well, we're public, all this information's in public filings, go look at the public filings. Whereas in a private company, we're usually able to dig beneath the hood um, further. And we have to because they don't have publicly available information. And then I think the other thing that makes a difference is like some of the other key stakeholders in a transaction. So if you're getting financing for your transaction and all our PE sponsors usually do get financing, you have to make sure your diligence also satisfies the lenders. And then we also get insurance for the transaction. Um, and usually with, that's like another stakeholder you have to make sure is comfortable with your level of diligence. Whereas maybe sometimes public companies don't need financing because they have um, cash on hand and, and they may not insure a deal either. And so maybe in that sense, the scope would be slightly less than what we typically do for our private equity sponsors. Interesting. And you, you said it varies based on public-private and based on you know the sources of, of financing potentially. But how about by industry? Does it vary based on what the underlying target is doing? And 
if it does, how do you manage that from the perspective of an attorney from the outside who probably doesn't know everything about manufacturing versus all these cement plants versus all the, all the other things a company could do? Yeah, you have to learn it really fast, um, at least enough to be knowledgeable enough to to sound smart in front of a client um, and to, to help run down the issues. But it's a good point. We've helped some of our clients buy vineyards before. The type of diligence you're doing on on vineyards and, and wine companies is drastically different than manufacturing, drastically different than a software company, right? So it's far more delicious, you mean. Yeah, like you, have to, you have to go and like taste all the wines just to make sure. Yeah, you yeah, have to do your due diligence. But I mean, like the point being is that we will tailor our diligence to the target company. And so if we think that the, the company may have, you know, an environmental footprint, we want to make sure that we're, we're covering our bases there and that, you know, if there are liabilities, we're scoping the potential risk to our client so that they can then you know, decide how much they want to pay for the company or whether they need to reduce their purchase price or how they want to handle that. But at the end of the day, the diligence is really targeted to let the client know, you know, this is the, this is the company you're buying, you know, no company is perfect. They'll have some warts on them. And it's just a matter of getting comfortable with, you know, how you're going to allocate the risk between the buyer and seller on those kind of items that are a little bit hairy. Yeah. And I think as you get more senior and you start seeing different targets come up, you even before the deal starts, we'll start having a sense of where the key sticking points and diligence is going to be. So like, as Reed mentioned, if it's a manufacturing company, you automatically start thinking, okay, I have to get my environmental colleagues on board. If you're buying in a, a company that has like unions in the workforce, you start thinking, okay, I need to get my employment colleagues on board immediately to start looking at these union arrangements, um, the more you do it and you start see you start doing repeat deals in industries, you start getting a better sense of the types of issues that come up. But with that said, no deal is the same. No target is the same. You start, like every deal has the, their own unique set of diligence issues that you have to get the client up to speed on. And then you figure out how to address the liabilities that you uncover. Shameless plug for our healthcare team too, because I mean, ropes help, you know, health care firm of the year, however many years running, you know, so many of our clients are interested in getting into the healthcare space if they're already in it, right? And so whether that be aggregators of dental clinics or aggregators of vet businesses or really interesting companies that do, you know, cancer research, stuff like that, right? Like they're going to have a healthcare component to it and that's incredibly regulatory heavy. And so you will work with our healthcare team and potentially outside specialized counsel to really kick the tires on those issues to make sure that um, you're really complying with all, all the laws and there's and there's no uh, issues from those perspectives. Do you mentioned that a big part of the job is process management? So I imagine that that's a big part of process management is coordinating among the various specialists. So you know, other than healthcare, who are the other specialty groups you coordinate with, and what are those interactions typically like? Yep. So I think every deal I've done, you always have a tax team because they will help advise on the structure of the deal. You almost always will have a labor and employment team because you're almost always buying targets that have employees unless maybe you're just doing like an asset sale. For any companies that have international operations, we then usually bring in our um, foreign Co corrupt practices group, international risk group. They're also extremely strong. And in fact, they, I think, do deals that even ropes isn't involved, like other clients bring them in even when we're not main deal counsel. And then um, 
if the target owns any kind of intellectual property, we'll have our IP team involved. If the target is processing anyone's personal information, we have our data privacy team involved. If it's a healthcare target, our healthcare team will be involved. If it involves like FDA, we have an FDA regulatory team. I think the job of the corporate lawyer is that you have to be well-versed enough on issues to spot them, to bring in the appropriate team. And sometimes too, like, especially as you build deeper relationships with your clients, they're often going to call you first. Yeah, I echo all of that. I think the way that I would think about the, the corporate team on a deal, right, is you are the generalist. You have to kind of be an inch deep, mile wide on all the issues, but you're also seeing all the issues, right? If you're on a specialist team, you know, you're focused on, you know, if you're IP, you're focused on the IP issues, right? And you may be negotiating a license agreement as part of the deal along with your diligence, but you're kind of capping to, to that. We get to see the entire deal from start to finish, and we get to understand all the different considerations that are coming up on that deal, which is really cool. I mean, I've heard it described as, you know, quarterbacking the deal, leading the deal, however you want to describe it. But because of that, like you get to see it through from start to finish and you, you end up getting this really substantial knowledge base uh, of all these different practice areas. So I know that if the company has certain workforce, there might be misclassification issues. And I know a little bit about that and can talk to our labor colleagues about, about that, you know, and that's, it's helpful. And it's, it's helped me in my practice and it's kind of helped me become a more well-rounded lawyer in that, in that regard. Yeah, so I have a similar situation on the asset management side where working sometimes with different folks than you are, but also tax teams and benefits teams. And what I find great about it is it means that there's a natural avenue on top of your own specialty for you to continue to grow, right? You can always be slightly stronger in those in your support and understanding of those specialty areas. And one of the more interesting things I've found about being the quarterback is not only just coordinating by receiving information in from the specialists, but also helping everyone to calibrate how important each issue is. Because I think when you're a specialist, part of the problem is that you're focused on your issue. And it's a big problem for you that there's this tax language that isn't correct. And part of your job as a quarterback, as the corporate person is to say, okay, but what's the quantum of the tax? Like, what are we actually talking about here? Right. And, and how big is that on the issues list of 10 things that we must get done before that we can close this deal. How big of an issue is it with that? And, you know, we're fortunate to work with really commercial and fantastic specialists, but they still aren't always as plugged into the whole rest of the deal. And it's your job to help uh, integrate the feedback that you're getting from various specialists and sort of sync it all up with the larger deal. 100% agree with all of that. I think that's like pretty consistent with our experience on the M&A PE side as well. That's great. So you talked a little bit about how as you get more senior, you learn to sort of issue spot and know who to go to for which which thing. And, you know, we talked a bit about diligence, which I imagine is a fairly junior task. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about how you see the different roles of different levels of seniority within your group. You know, what type of tasks is each doing? How much interface with clients, with counterparties, with partners or different people having at different stages of their career? Yeah. And, you know, I think before we even go into different phases of people's careers, I think our practice has been like, I think, pretty flexible and fluid in helping people develop as early as they want to. So 
I actually have been working with partners directly since I was a fourth year on deals. If you're willing to take on responsibility early on, you can step into a senior associate role on the faster side. But I think we also have a very good like trading models, a good support group. And so no one is ever getting overwhelmed or being handed more than they can chew. So I wanted to start with that. And then I think in terms of like different levels of responsibility, usually our junior associates, I would say, are in the first to third year category. And they're on the ground with diligence, deal organization through checklists, coordinating with paralegals, helping with signings and closings. Then I think as you get to be a mid-level, I've always thought that being a mid-level in some ways is the hardest because you are managing. It's the first time you're starting to manage junior associates, but you're also trying to learn the substance. So you're drafting a lot more. You're you're trying to actually like understand more deeply what's happening in the transaction. And you're also helping the senior associate. And so you have like two different levers that are kind of pulling and pushing at you. And then I think as a senior associate, that's when one, you start focusing a lot more on client development. You lead issues list calls. You, list nego- you lead negotiations with the other side. Um, you start taking in a, a, a lot more of a, I think, client-facing role at that point. But then, you know, you're also overseeing your mid-levels. You have to teach and train them. And you have to make sure that, like, everything is kind of going smoothly. And I think at whatever level you are, I always tell my deal teams, feel empowered to feel that this is your deal. And we are all working together It's not D's deal as the senior associate. It's not the partner's deal. It's all of our deals. Um, And we all play a very important role in getting this done. Yeah, I think the nice thing about ropes, right, is like I don't think that there's this lockstep hierarchy of junior, mid-level, senior. You get as much out of your experience as you put in. So when it comes to like being a junior, if you're super engaged and super curious, you're going to learn a lot more. And then as a, you know, end of your first year, second year, you might be doing things that third and fourth years are doing at other firms or even within the firm because you've just, you know, taken the initiative and and through that have learned a bunch. And so folks are are willing to let you run with whatever you've shown that you can run with. And it's great because from, you know, a mid-level senior perspective, it's less work for them to do an ideal and they they can trust you with it, which is great. And so that's nice, right? I mean, I, I think across the firm, you see a lot of, you know, third years running, really running deals uh, in the sense that they're running the process. Sure, they're, you know, running things by the partners, by the senior associates, but they're they're taking the first cut at a bunch of things um, and, and they're running process and they're leading calls and they're, you know, handling emails with clients. And I think that's, I think it's pretty unique to Rose. And I think that it's nice to be in a, an environment where folks let you take that initiative while also providing a safety net, understanding you know, as a third, fourth year, you're still learning yourself. So I think that's that, that's a really cool aspect of the firm and something I've really appreciated about about working at Robes. Now, the type of deal, I think, oftentimes dictates the type of staffing and people's responsibilities. So we have lots of like very large, complicated transactions where we have a many senior associates, mid-levels, juniors. And then sometimes we have smaller deals where, you know, we have to be leanly staffed and in those deals, people tend to work up a lot more. Um, so I think that makes a difference. The other thing that's also nice is because our private equity clients are serial acquirers, 
as your responsibility increases, the people that you're working with um, at the client are also going through similar stages of development in their career. So like when I started out, I worked with um, people on the private equity side who were maybe associates or vice presidents, and now they're directors or going to be managing directors. And it's been nice to be able to be their counsel throughout these years and you're teaching each other and growing together. And I think because private equity clients kind of have a similar model as we do and how um, people get promoted and their responsibilities at different stages, that that's just been like a unique and nice aspect, I think, to our practice in, in terms of client relationships. That's great. Do you, Are you staffed typically on a team basis or on a deal by deal basis? Because you talked about sort of growing with your clients and I was under the impression that there are teams, but it's also transactional staffing. So how, is, how does that work from uh, availability and timing perspective? Yeah, it's just a little bit of both. I think, you know, as a junior associate, you kind of get staffed on, you know, on transaction by transaction basis. Hey, we have this deal coming up. Do you have time to help? And then from there, things become a little bit more organic. There's always the, seems like you have a little bit of free time. Can you help on this? But once you've done a few deals for um, a client, then you know what they like, you know what their preferences are, you know how they approach a deal, you know what things they're thinking about when they approach a deal. So you really become like a trusted advisor to them. And so they'll reach back out to you or, you know, the same ropes and great team that you've worked with will reach back out to you to do the deal. Also, I mean, just another aspect of private equity generally, right, is our clients will acquire a platform to then go acquire a bunch more companies. And so we may do the initial platform deal and then that platform will have ropes do a bunch of the add-on acquisitions, right? And so then you're just dealing with the same folks that you worked with before and just kind of doing smaller, sometimes large, right? It depends on the deal, but so, you know, you're doing more acquisitions for the same client and the company at that point that is not your portfolio company. And so that's a pretty, pretty interesting dynamic. So again, one of the, the fun parts about doing private equity work is really like growing with your clients organically and becoming a trusted advisor to them. They have questions, you know, you know what they like and how, how they may react to certain things. And so that that's a pretty fun aspect of, of the growth and trajectory of your development as a lawyer. Yeah. And I think it's important. I encourage everyone um, when you're practicing at the end of every year, just to kind of take stock of what you did that year. Did I work on enough buy side transactions? Did I get some sell side experience? Did I do a joint venture? Did I do a carve out? And like, so for me each year, I think about what I've done and what I haven't done. And so for the next year, I'll tell the staffing partners like, hey, if you see a take private, like I would love to get that experience. I think that's an important part of your practice. And then I think the second part of it is as you get more senior, you start, you've built these deep relationships with clients. So you start focusing on certain client relationships. But I always, for me, I think like maybe 75% of my practice now is working with three or four clients I've been working with a lot in the past few years. And then I try to keep 25% open just to do a different type of deal or a different type of experience I haven't had to make sure I'm like broadening my substantive deal base. As the economic climate also kind of changes what types of deals we're seeing. And so we might see a bit more distressed deals in the upcoming year compared to the typical leverage buyout that we were doing um, in the past few years. So I think it's important also to kind of grow with the market and stay fluid with your skill set. 
Yeah, and also just putting my like junior associate hat back on as I reminisce about those times fondly. It's important to remember that you have your external clients, right? But your client also as a junior associate are the partners and the senior associates that you work with, right? So you also want to get a diverse experience working with different folks within the firm. You'd see different styles of approaching deals. You get different takes on how to negotiate certain points and what's really important on a deal by deal, partner by partner, senior associate by senior associate basis. It just helps kind of give you a frame of reference for your own practice as you develop and grow. So that's been another kind of fun aspect of the firm is just getting to work with different folks and appreciate their differing styles and um, kind of learning. Because I think as you grow and develop, you kind of emulate the folks that you've learned from, right? And so being able to to take the great parts of you know each person you work with is, is super helpful. Yeah, I, I appreciate that she keeps 25% of her availability open to help with my random projects that I reach out with, reach out to her on. So I appreciate that. Do you mentioned briefly buy side, sell side, carve out? Can you talk uh, just at a high level? And I imagine there's an infinite number of ways to skin the cat here, but at a high level about what the different types of projects in the group are and like substantively what they are. Yeah, so we have a few different types of transactions. So if we're representing a buyer, um, we that that's a buy side transaction, and you're representing them in acquiring a company. Sometimes we're on the other side of that, so we'll instead be representing a seller and selling a company. Companies can be bought and sold in many different ways. Sometimes you're selling the whole thing. Sometimes you're picking it apart and selling assets or just selling a portion of the business to others. And so have that transaction structured usually then kind of gives you a sense of the scope of work. Usually picking apart a portion of the company and selling it in a carve out tends to get more complicated than buying the whole piece. Other types of transactions we do, we'll do joint ventures when someone will partner 50-50 on a a, a deal. Sometimes we represent buyers and buying assets out of bankruptcy. So distress type of work. We do take private. So we'll help a a sponsor take a public company private. What I really like about PE and M&A is that you're truly never bored. You see everything that's out there and there's always more to learn and grow. Um, and each year I've gotten to do different types of transactions and I've learned and grow- grown from them. So I'll throw in my biased view here, which is that there's also some transactions that overlap with my group, um, which is great. First of all, I should say, of course, lots of our clients who are uh, clients of ours in the asset management space, meaning in fundraising, are also clients of ours in the acquisition space. And that's great because we get to work hand in hand. And then there's also matters where it's not just the client, but there's substantive overlap between uh, the project. And so, for example, there are GP-led recaps where fund sponsor is deciding that they want to hold on to an asset for longer or was approached by someone about holding on to the asset for longer than the fund can. And so they set up a new vehicle and sell it to themselves, basically. And that's sort of something between a fundraise and a transaction. And there are also, you know, co-investment transactions where you bring in third parties to invest alongside uh, the main equity provider in a transaction. Uh, and those both live in sort of the space between our two practice groups. And so sometimes they're shared. Sometimes one of the practice groups handles at the other practice group. So they're really, you know, there definitely is a core to what you do and a core to what 
my practice group does, for example. Um, but there's also certainly lots of blurry overlap between all the groups um, and, you know, lots of, of uh, areas that you can grow in that are more akin to other areas. While I'm on that topic, how do you think your practice compares to others in terms of like the timelines and the type of tasks that you're doing at a very like basic level, like calls, meetings, drafting, legal research, that kind of stuff? How, what is the core of what you do and what are the timelines like relative to other groups? I think it, again, depends on the, the context of the transaction. So a lot of the deals we do for clients are things that we call competitive auctions. So when a seller wants to sell a company, they'll engage investment bankers and then the investor investment bankers will pretty much put on like a pageant, like a beauty pageant, and they will go out to all these potential buyers and say like, here's this company, are you interested in buying it? By the time the lawyers get looped into that process, we might be representing a client and they're, they might be competing against three or four or five other different buyers. And if they really want that company, we get a lot more time pressure because we have to be done with our work fastest and we have to have the best price to try to win that auction. So, you know, so those transactions tend to move very quickly and you are, you're getting a lot done in a short period of time. Sometimes we have transactions where it might actually take months to get a regulatory approval. And so that might be on a slightly more relaxed timeline. But I think the other element of our practice is we actually um, represent our clients in doing these transactions. And then for companies where we've represented the client in acquiring those companies, we almost act as like an outside GC to those companies. And so those portfolio companies also have a robust amount of work each day. So we, we balance that with our deal work. And then I think Reed will probably agree with me. Once you've been at a place long enough, um, you just have acquired so many companies that you help with in addition to the deal practice you do. So I think we generally have a busy practice. Um, and sometimes periods of slowness might be affected by what's going on in the market. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And there's definitely cycles and there's definitely ebbs and flows to our our work. And I think that may be a little bit different compared to some other practice groups, but there's some, you know, certain weeks or months that were incredibly busy. And then once you sign a deal or close a deal, things might slow down a bit, right? And you may need to not take something on in that week as you kind of, you know, reset um, just to kind of come back to a, a normal baseline. From from a what are the types of things that we're doing on a daily basis? You know, a lot of a lot of calls with clients, with other side coordinated calls with lenders, uh, rec and warranty insurance underwriters. Um, you know, from a diligence perspective, it's reviewing and summarizing. You know, the various agreements our company may have. From a documentation perspective for the transaction, it's drafting purchase agreements in whatever flavor they may be. Drafting ancillary agreements that go along with it, like escrow agreements, paying agent agreements, uh, helping our employment labor team, uh, benefits team, pull together the the management equity docs for the go forward management team and, and negotiate their employment agreements. So there's a whole you know spectrum of things that we help with on a on a day to day basis, depending where we're at in the deal cycle. Um, which may, again, I think the the takeaway is that every day is 
new and exciting and you never get bored um, in our practice. Um, and there's always challenges, right? I mean, there, there are demanding days and, and the timelines are quick. You might receive something on a Monday and you have to turn comments that take a long time and turn them by Wednesday, right? And so it's the nature of, of the work and it's just the nature of those those competitive auctions that he was talking about where folks just want to get deals done and, and do them quickly because, if, you know, deal certainty is everything. People want to make sure that they have the deal and on the sell side, you want to make sure that you're going to sell the company and there's no obstacles to that and they want to come to a meeting of the mind as quickly as possible. So um, it's always it's always fun. And that's the deal side of it. Um, I would say 25% of my day might also be um, helping portfolio companies with different matters. Um, recently, I drafted and negotiated a settlement agreement with the former CEO because um, the private equity sponsors really wanted the corporate team to drive that process. Um, we'll help our clients with like equity repurchases. They'll have general advice on contracts. So you do in this role, in addition to being a transactional lawyer, you also get some general counsel type experience as well. We talked a little bit about balancing workflow as a challenge. Would you say that that's the biggest challenge you face or what What do you think is sort of the biggest challenge you face in, in managing your practice? I think workflow is definitely hard because sometimes we don't always have predictability and visibility on deal timelines. Um, so you may get a deal and they may say, listen, this deal timeline is going to sign two months from now. And you think, okay, well, that's great because that means I can take on another deal. And then you'll get a call the very next day that says, no, we're actually going to sign two weeks from now. So the deal timeline gets accelerated. And I think as you're a junior, it's just important to communicate with your deal teams when things change because we can't predict it. But I think we as a fur can help our associates navigate through that. So maybe we'll restaff a deal if someone had something unexpected. Um, and I think you also think about it in your context of like your role on the deal. So I, I think um, as a senior associate, I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but I actually think I tend to take on less deals because I know that when I'm on a deal, I'm going to be there in the weeds from beginning to end. And so I want to really make sure I know what's happening and understand what's happening. And sometimes some people might come on a deal for just like the diligence aspect and then diligence is done. And there might be like another month left of the deal where everyone else is working on it. So then maybe then you can take on another deal. So I, I think it's a bit of a balance. So I, the other thing that made me, like when Reed said that we do have peaks and valleys, I don't know if everyone personally likes to practice that way, but I actually, for me, love a peak and valley practice because I, I like months where I'm just learning a lot and developing a lot. And then I can take three weeks off to take a vacation and go to like Africa or Asia. Um, and that's kind of nice when you have a, a peak and valley practice. It gives you more flexibility to take long vacations. Yeah. If you're someone who like kind of thrives on momentum, then I think the like deal work is really good, right? Because you're able to be like, okay, for the next couple of weeks, we're, we're really going to be grinding to get this deal done. And then after that, I'll take a break. So I think that's helpful. I think coming to work every day and working, you know, the same hours every day and going home, I feel like that could maybe be a drag. It's all, it's all based on your personality and your personal preference. But for me, again, it, it certainly keeps things interesting, right? Yeah. The nice thing about our deals is usually the uh, clients and the other side, everyone wants it to happen as quickly as possible. But once it's done, it's done. Whereas I have some friends who are in litigation who might be working on the same 
matter for six or seven years of their career. And I know personally for me and my working style, that would drive me nuts. Um, the other good thing about when you're working on deals that wrap up pretty quickly means you get exposed. You get the opportunity to work with a lot of different people, different clients. You you can just broaden the 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 groups of people you're interacting with. I agree. And I, I think you're both totally spot on from my perspective, at least about it just being about finding what works best for you and finding the workflow approach that works best for you. Because I think in funds, for example, I think we have peaks and valleys, but they're both, they're both, you know, shallower than your peaks and valleys. Um, So, you know, there definitely are busier times and we don't have a nine to five, but we're definitely not quite as hectic, 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 and then slow, slow, slow um, as, as the pure transactional folks. Speaking about that and about the different feel of the group, can you talk to me about the culture of the M&A PCT group and how well you feel integrated into the firm and maybe mentorship a little bit? I think that given the nature of our practice where when we're trying to get deals done, we are in constant communication with the people that we're working with. And as a result of that, you build deep friendships and deep mentorships and you talk to the people you work with maybe for that period of time more than you talk to anyone else in your life. And whether or not I think you're looking for friends or mentors, like you're going to get them at, in a corporate practice at a place like Ropes. Um, and, I, and I think it's nice that I, and I, you know, same with how we see our clients grow. And we, we also see um, our colleagues go through different big milestones in their life and big developments and you're rooting for them and they're rooting for you. Um, and I, I think that's a really, really nice human aspect of our job. And at the end of the day, for me, one of the most valuable things about this job is being able to mentor anyone. Cause I think this really is a business where you invest in the people that you work with. If you enjoy being part of a team, then like deal work, private equity specifically is, is a great practice area just because you, you, it is the most team centric kind of practice I can think of. I mean, you're constantly working with a very specialty teams, um, currently working with your client, currently working with, you know, your corporate team to, to get the deal done and kind of collaborating across the various groups and you do get to know people very well. Right. I mean, it's not like I'm only working with folks in the PE group on a daily basis, on a daily basis. I am talking to our tax colleagues, our labor folks, our environmental folks. I mean, it just, it, it's so nice to get to know so many different people at the firm. And I think because of that, you really, you really feel like you are part of the firm, right? You really get a handle on like what the firm looks like because you have such a good interaction with, with so many different people and groups of people at the firm. You both talked a little bit about the people and, and Reed, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you learn the different work styles and you try to start to emulate those more senior to you. So I'm wondering if I could put you each on the spot to say someone whose work style you emulate and, and what that work style is. I would say there's a lot of similar work style. It's it's folks that take their work seriously, but don't necessarily take themselves seriously in that like they're really good at what they do, super knowledgeable and really eager to to teach and to develop uh, juniors, but without adding undue stress to, to situations that are already stressful, right? It's people keeping keeping calm in kind of tense moments and those types of personalities and those types of of experiences really help inform but and make you want to kind of become that 
uh, yourself. Uh, and I'll just say that, you know, certain folks that I work with, especially in like the San Francisco office, like uh, uh, Cho Lee and Liz Gallucci, for example, just so willing to just take juniors under their wing and really help them develop. They're incredibly busy, but more than happy to carve out 20, 30 minutes to explain, you know, why we're taking a certain approach to a markup and a purchase agreement and how that differs from a different deal. So I would, I would say like, that's a perfect example of, of the type of attorney that I'd like to emulate myself. And I try to pay it forward to junior associates as well, because it's up there are steep learning curves involved as, as you develop in your career and having somebody look out for you like that is, is super helpful and super important. Yeah. I think throughout my practice, you know, I have my own distinct style, but I think I've tried to borrow from others throughout the way. So there's a few partners and senior associates I work with who I think are like extremely technically strong drafters. And so, you know, I've tried to model them and emulate them in terms of drafting. I have other people I've worked with who I think are great at delivering straight to the point advice to the client and the, the type of advice that like a business person wants to hear and not sift through a long email chain of legal analysis. I've worked with some partners who um, are always unflappable and, you know, and are able to seamlessly navigate through any type of issue that comes up unexpected or not. Um, and they, they stay calm during negotiations. And so that's like another part of my style that I, I've taken from them. And so I think like throughout the way you work with a lot of people, you also see people on the other side, you see opposing counsel and you're like, okay, that's something I never want to do. Or sometimes, you know, you're like, okay, that was actually a good thing they did. So there's just a lot of different people that you can borrow from. And then I think, um, some of my style will change based on the particular client or partner that I'm working with because some clients are a lot more informal and they really just want like a one sentence answer. They'd rather just get on the phone and talk issues out. And then others really do pre prefer like a more detailed email laying out all the various legal considerations and legal points. So you have to also, I think, as part of working with different clients and different partners, you have to have that level of emotional intelligence where you're sort of adapting to what that person is looking for and how they communicate. You talked a bunch about how close you all are in the in a working sense that you're all working very actively with each other. Um, what about from a social perspective? What are social events you know like with your group? What kind of social events have you done? Yeah, we're we're very social. I you know I think. One of the things driving maybe the social aspect of our group is we're working in a context where people are generally happy to be buying this company or selling it. It's very different from when you're working with, um, well, you're in the context of a litigation because ultimately no one wants to be sued or in the context of a bankruptcy. So I think there's always like a celebratory overlay hanging over our matters when they they conclude. And so we definitely do, we will do a lot of internal group signing or closing dinners. Um, I like to take out my junior associates as much as I can as like a thank you to them and wanting to encourage them to, you know, keep taking ownership over client relationships and responsibility over portfolio company matters. So I think you do some like deal team specific socialization. Then our group in New York, at least we have um, a weekly get together every Thursday. Um, we have a holiday party. We have quarterly events. 
And then we have client events. Like once you start working with more clients, like we'll take them to basketball games or a concert or whatever it is. Um, I'm going to the Blink-182 reunion tour in the spring with a client um, that I'm very excited for. So I, I think you just get a lot of like internal firm social opportunities and then client opportunities. And then even if you're not in the PE group specifically, we have a lot of like good firm events that's inclusive of the whole firm. Um, and then different subgroups like the Women's Forum, the Multicultural Forum. So there's a lot of opportunities to connect with the community at Ropes. Reed, how about you? Yeah, no, similar experience. I mean, there's always the, you know, you get the closing lunches, closing dinners where you get a fancy meal and you get to kind of enjoy the company and the folks that you've been working with on the deal for the last few weeks or months or whatever it may be. So that's always fun. I mean, from a from a practice group perspective, and I guess this, you know, this is obviously an anecdote specific to San Francisco, but the PE group for a while was doing bocce down at the ferry building on the Embarcadero, right? So we would go compete against other firms or companies in our building and we go play bocce for a couple of, you know for an hour uh, after work one day a week like that was incredibly fun and great team building type environment i think it's really important to have those those informal fun get-togethers it just helps kind of break down you know any sort of like hesitation or reservation that junior associates may have about you know asking questions to mid-level senior partners right and so through those interactions you get to learn about the people that you work with and you get to learn about their families and they get to learn about your family. It's a lot easier to say, you know, Hey guys, I'm taking a long, you know, I'm taking a long weekend this weekend. Like I'm going to be out on Friday. Like, would you mind just covering for me while not? I think the same is true too. When you have events with clients, um, as you get to know more about them and they know more about you, you're not just a, an email that pops up in their inbox. They, they know who D is and they know what her life is about. Um, and you just start, developing like a mutual understanding like one client i've worked with it turns out that um he grew up just two towns over from me and we were the same age and we have mutual friends in common and none of that is something we would have discovered if not for having been at like a client event where we sat next to each other and we just started talking about it and, and reed you mentioned that you're in san francisco and that maybe things are different with bocce ball in san francisco but i wonder What's it like on inter-office teams? I assume that you work pretty broadly across the offices. Uh, if if that's not true, disabuse me of the notion, but I think it is. And if it is, do you ever fly out? Do people ever fly out for closing dinners or what's the, what's the approach there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, on any deal, right? Just we're dealing with, we're interacting with our specialist teams at every office, right? We'll have folks in Chicago, New York, Boston, or San Francisco office. So I think what that means on the West Coast is that we're, we have early mornings because, you know, the work the, the work emails start a little bit earlier, but it also dies down a little bit earlier as well, which is nice. But yeah, I love flying and catching up with people in Boston, New York, Chicago, and they'll fly out for closing dinners with the clients, you know, local to the West Coast. You know, I had a training at a client the other day and it just happened that the the, the debt partner on the deal was from Chicago. So he came out and we did the training together at our clan out here in San Francisco. And we grabbed lunch with some of the associates at the PE firm afterward. And it's just like a really nice way to to stay connected with folks. But it really, I mean, like there is no distinction between the offices. I'll, I'll give an anecdote. We had a lateral associate recently join from one of our, um, I'd say like key competitor law firms. Um, and she told me that she heard thank you 
and had gotten a lot more appreciation in one week at ropes than she had three years at her other firm. But I think um, that is just really true of our culture and model that people are very nice and respectful and appreciative. And we very much are very collaborative and team players where we're really just trying to help and support each other. There have been so many times when like I've just been working a lot and haven't had a chance to grab some food. And so an, an associate in my group will just bring me um, cookies or, or coffee. And I, I think like we really are all very much trying to look out for each other and help each other and make this a good place for everyone to work. A perfect transition into why you chose Ropes and Gray, especially D. you mentioned that you're a lateral coming from another firm. So what was it that attracted you to Ropes specifically? Yeah, so as I um, mentioned when I, I gave that example about M&A being like a pie, I just didn't have steady workflow at my other firm. And so I thought like, okay, private equity practices tend to be some of the most active and robust. And I was at a point in my career where I just wanted to go to a place of high deal volume because that would give me so many more learning and growth opportunities. And so when I looked at the firms that have the type of practice I wanted, maybe there was like four or five of them. And then when I took a deeper look at those firms, I thought Ropes had just the best culture. They were the most humane of the types of practices out there. Um, I think we very much have like a mindset where everyone should be getting good opportunities and a good amount of work, but they're not trying to like squeeze every single hour out of us through like as few people as possible. In fact, like I think our group is very supportive if like the existing associate base is really busy and strapped. They actively go out and hire to make sure that we're all getting a good balance and we're all getting the help and support that we need. And so it was things like that that really attracted me to Robes. Um, I think it's like the quality of work we do and the strength of our clients and how deep those relationships are. But then also just the people. Um, actually, when I came to Robes, I like all my law school friends live in New York. My family lives in New Jersey. My college friends live in New York. I had friends from my old firm. I thought, OK, like I have so many friends. So Ropes is just going to be a place that I work. And then before I knew it, like, you know, you just can't help but making friends because you just genuinely really like the people that you're working with. Yeah, I, I, so I was a law student interviewing at a bunch of different firms. And I just remember at the end of the day, what <laughs> tip the scales with the Ropes, it's just a gut feeling, right? I mean, you go through all the the pros and cons, what kind of practice do I think I want to be in and, and what's the reputation of the firm and, and what kind of clients do they have and all of that stuff, right? You do your diligence on all of all the different firms. But at the end of the day, who who am I going to be on a deal with at, you know, midnight trying to get this deal done? And who who am I going to, who do I want to work next to on that, in that situation, right? And so based off of the conversations I had with folks, the just general feeling I got about that, I went with my gut and I chose ropes. And I'd, it's been, it was the right call. Uh, and I found this obviously like the anecdotes we, we've given all along have kind of supported that. I think the other thing that I wanted to add that drew me to Ropes is um, they they really do have a commitment to diversity. And I'm both a woman associate and a diverse associate. And um, I think, at least in my experience, they have put their money where their mouth is. Like they've been committed to promoting um, diverse candidates to partnership that I've seen each year in the time that I've been here. Um, they 
given me a mentor who's on the policy committee who I meet with every month to talk about my own development and thing and things like that. Um, and I, I know every firm has like their teaser on diversity and how much it matters to them. But I think ropes in my experience at least has gone out of its way to make sure I'm getting leadership opportunities, client opportunities, and giving me access to people who are very good mentors. And a lot of my deal teams now that I've become more senior, you know, you you really do work, I think, on very diverse deal teams. Um, we have people from all types of backgrounds that I work with regularly. And that's just been also, I think, another really rewarding experience being at Rope. Do you mention that your clients know D and what her life is like? So we want to get to know D and what her life is like. So what what is your life like? What do you what do you do in your spare time? What's your what's your what's your life outside of work like? So I love to travel and each year I try to take two or three very epic trips. So since the time I've been at Ropes, I've gotten I've been to Botswana, Tanzania, Zanzibar, the Amazon jungle in Brazil, Borneo in Malaysia. So I've gotten to do a lot of like really interesting and cool trips. And my goal is to make it to Australia and Antarctica in the next few years, and then I'll have been to every continent. Oh man, I'm so jealous. While while you're while you're off in Botswana and stuff, I'm just chasing three lunatic children around my house. Um, so I'm very jealous of all your travel, um, and, and hope to make it there one day too. Um, Reed, I'm gonna guess football. Big New England New England Patriots fan here, coming from the, the Northeast, but per D did a lot of traveling as well, which is nice. The ropes kind of affords you that that ability to be able to get up and go when when you plan nice vacations, right? So I was able to have a, you know do some fun trips with my wife to like Portugal, Spain, Morocco, did a really fun trip to Japan. My life has since uh, seemed to transition a little bit more towards yours, Yoni, where I have an 18-month-old and a two-month-old. And so I think like my the light reading I do is is, is potty training books and stuff like that. So my life has taken a, a, a 180. So my daughter is is two months. I had like let's take a little bit of time uh, when she was first born, but I'll take a delayed paternity leave. I'll get I'll take you know nice uh, chunk of time for paternity leave, and everybody's super supportive of that. And we have a, a nice chunk of time there um, with the ropes paternity policy. So it's definitely possible to to balance family and life. So many partners, and you know, you know this obviously have have family lives and and are able to balance it with uh, with work as well. So another another really nice. Uh, shout out for the firm yeah and congratulations it sounds like your house is extremely hectic too and i hope you're uh getting sleep here and there it's a it sleeps at a premium right now yeah it sleeps at a premium but we're 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 doing well i wish i could tell you that it gets so much better but it really varies by kid my six-year-old uh woke us up at at five the last few days and we've been having discussions with him about how it's okay if he doesn't if he if he can't sleep but unless he's sick or something's wrong he doesn't have to wake us up at five. He can go read a book or something in his room. So, you know, the challenges continue. Bigger kids, bigger problems. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you, Dee. And thank you, Reed, for taking the time. It's really been a great pleasure listening to you. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you found this to be a helpful and insightful episode. If there's a specific practice group or area you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please reach out to me directly. I'd love to hear from you. If you're a law student or a recent graduate, would like to learn more, please visit our website at www.ropesgrayrecruiting.com or check us out on Instagram at ropesgray. You can subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. 
Please look out for future episodes and share with your friends. Thanks again for listening and see you on the next episode.